0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We're in season 11 now, would you believe? But for listeners who might be unfamiliar with all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. For the first time in what feels like ages, we're doing this interview face to face. Absolutely no Zoom has been involved in the making of this show And today I'm delighted to find myself in the central London studio of the artist Emma Witter. Now Emma has made quite a name for herself over the past few years with her extraordinary delicate sculptures that often resemble flowers but are created rather intriguingly from animal bones such as oxtail and chicken feet. The pieces straddle our sense of beauty and the macabre. As she told one writer, I'm fascinated with the diversity of death and burial rituals across the world. In the floral motifs, I do like the balance of representation of life and death, fragility and strength. Emma graduated in performance design and practice from Central St. Martins in 2012 and has subsequently won a fistful of awards and column inches. In 2019, she had a show at London Saraband, the Lee Alexander McQueen Foundation, entitled Remember You Must Die. While her work has been exhibited in galleries such as the Mayfair-based Fumi, And Ting Ying, as well as the recent group show Triggered Economics or How to Commit to the Inevitable on an empty floor of an office building on Bruton Street. Emma, lovely to see you. How are you?
1: (laughs) I'm really good. good, good.
0: You're clinging your cushion very tightly to yourself. Are you sure you're okay?
1: (laughs) I'm very nervous, but I'm pushing through it. Good. Just for you, Grant. Good.
0: Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, look, can we talk about the space we're in? We're in the middle of London, right opposite Selfridges. So, where are we and maybe can you describe it a bit for our listeners
1: i'm in this wonderful situation at the moment doing a six-month live work residency um at picton studios which is very close to selfridges courtesy of them which has been incredible free rent for six months studio and living
0: right So why? What are you doing with Selfridges then?
1: They've got a building that I assume was sort of overspill for their office spaces and they've opened it up for sort of creative business, like young businesses and artists. And um, I don't know, it's just like a really amazing residency that it's not that you have to sort of produce a certain outcome. I think there's sort of an opportunity for collaboration, but it's very much much like a charitable.
0: So basically you're here and you can do whatever the hell (laughs) you like. Much. <laughs> good. Good. Sounds, sounds yeah. like a really good deal. I've got to get into this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk for the listeners. What do we have in front of us? How
1: big is this space? What can we um, see? How would I describe it? In sp- I don't know how to describe it in space. A sort of small living room-sized. Studio, um, which is actually perfect for like small-scale sculpture that I'm working on. So I've got a collection of my sort of um, findings and weird collections of objects. And
0: there are bones here. Yes, they're are, there are quite
1: a few. <laughs> these bones. are not all the bones. This is like my is, not, <laughs> these are my the bones. sample bones.
0: Where are the other bones?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, in another storage facility that I have. But yeah, there's uh, I've got quite a museum of things I've collected.
0: So how many? I mean I don't want to get into too many exact numbers but how many bones are we talking that you just kind of have?
1: Um but quite a few boxes like you'll see sort of these clear um like these clear boxes are all sort of labeled specifically which are quite they're quite interesting to look at just anyway to sort of like reevaluate what the objects that we have but I have like a wall of <laughs> a sort of small wall of my collection.
0: And this isn't your only studio. You have another space in South Kensington. I've had
1: yeah during the pandemic I was really interested in the abandoned spaces and all of the shop spaces that were empty and how a lot of artists were struggling during that time. And how can we sort of bridge a gap between the two? And I approached a lot of landlords to see if there's anything that we could do. Um, and so I took it on as a sort of guardian property mm. with the deal that actually during the lockdown, the guard, the landlord then got rate relief during that time. So it was a win-win for everybody mm.
0: But you had a display window and stuff there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, You, you were kind, yeah, of yeah. kind of doing mini shows yeah. and, and kind of selling from yeah. it. Yeah,
1: but... well, it was amazing because it's. I would never have thought, I, th- I guess the spaces wouldn't have been available before then. And there's a lot of things about the pandemic that were obviously really difficult, but there mm. were these amazing silver linings if you just went out and found them.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's something I was going to talk because, I mean, how have the last 18 months been for you? You seem to have been like, incredibly <laughs> busy. I remember talking to you and you were on the residency, like last February in the middle of the Hampshire countryside or something.
1: Gorgeous. Yeah. Xenia.
0: Yeah. And now you've got this residency just off Oxford Street. You don't let the grass grow.
1: No. I've been a gypsy this, you know, 18 months right. or year, past year, but I've loved it. I've actually mm. really loved it. And it's weird to say about the pandemic because I'm not a big fan of disease or, you know, poverty <laughs> and all the rest well, of it. you
0: and the rest of us really.
1: But it's completely shaken things up and I've really enjoyed it. And I've Mm. actually really liked the challenge of that. And if you do go into survival mode, you can really push to make things happen. And sometimes having some kind of challenge or struggle is where the best sort of creativity comes through. Mm. And I've been quite excited by that this whole time, weirdly.
0: (laughs) And you've had this show called Triggered Economics or How to Commit to the Inevitable in Mayfair. You had a piece entitled, it was a group show, but you had a piece entitled I Don't Fucking Work for You, which was made of cement freshwater pearl and crystal resin. There was a mop and a bucket involved as well, I think. But so what was that about?
1: So me and my best bud, Jonah Ponza, sort of stumbled across property developers who had all these spaces and it would have worked out for them for us to take it on as like a gallery space or to do some kind of event and they had a particular space that was they only had it available for five weeks and so it was a shotgun show it was like here's the like we met the guy in the afternoon he gave us the key we visited it and it was just happening that day and we (laughs) somehow pulled it out of the bag in 10 days which was just crazy and so much fun. And it was this top floor, really 80s sort of Wolf of Wall Street marble office, like horrendous design, middle of Mayfair, which we just thought was so brilliant. And as we walked in, it did feel sort of quite apocalyptic that the business had left in such a hurry that there were just dead plants left there. Like all of this kind of paraphernalia that I was really inspired by all the objects that were left over. Mm. And they'd taken up all the carpet tiles. And all the glue was obviously left on the metal underneath in the main space. And so they'd started to mop it up and clean the glue. So there was this bucket and a mop that had just been abandoned. Like ah. they sort of started it and then gone. It was almost like someone had been like, it's five o'clock. Right, well, fuck it, I'm right. not staying any longer. Mm. And there was something brilliant about doing a show in such a short amount of time because you just made snap decisions and went with them. And I looked at these sort of objects and, and was like, right, this is my sculpture and I'm going to recreate it and I'm going to make it sort of this slyly, you know, put something lovely in there that's quite sly. And the energy of the way it had been left was like, we've all felt like that at some point when you get roped into, I don't know, being a yes person and doing this favour and that favour and you suddenly just think, hang on. No, <laughs>
0: like, I've never been a yes person. It's been, right. a re- <laughs> been a real problem in my career, let me tell you. But there were no animal animal bones in your piece. I mean, I was wondering whether that was a conscious decision to step away from bones or it sounds like it was just kind of circumstance.
1: Yeah, it was definitely circumstantial and it was very site specific. So it was sort of responding to the space. Um, I had another piece with the Animal bones that felt very right because it was like the de- a really dead plant like really l- slopey dead plant that resembled the plants that had been left in there just to die but this was very much yeah just responding to the space and it was just good practice to sort of branch out and do some use another material
0: but you do work with other materials as well yeah, don't you? yeah i yeah. mean so there's there's copper the electroform yeah. copper i think yeah, and wire yeah, yeah. how did the fascination with bones which is the thing you're best known for mm-hmm. how did the fascination bones start in the first instance There was a story about an oxtail i believe
1: yeah i noticed that I was always sort of really interested in food as a material in general. So when I really started out, when I came out of college, I'd set up a company doing food sculpture and we sort of got into advertising. And I really loved the idea of having non-art materials. So Mm. I was using anything but what you really should be trained to use. And I didn't do a fine art course. So it was just me thinking, okay, I don't know how to do, you know, bronze or you know, you work with stone or do anything traditional. And so I'm just gonna if I use something that's a non-art material, I can just make it up. So there was a right. huge freedom and I'd collected things and experimented with loads of food items and then I started using bone and just completely fell in love with it.
0: So it wasn't like a didactic decision that I'm going to use waste to talk about the situation we're in. It wasn't a sustainability
1: No, no, no. no. It was never that was a lovely sort of outcome. Um but it was never I never sort of woke up one morning and thought, right, I'm gonna be a you know I know it was never to sort of make a point but the point came naturally kind of thing
0: yeah because you did do that residency at Mark Hicks's old restaurant now unfortunately called the Tram Shed right which was kind of I mean the outcome of that was talking about waste yes
1: Yeah, yeah yeah exactly Um, Yeah, that was brilliant. That was three months where, because he had the gallery downstairs and it was obviously, he had, you know, huge artworks inside and it felt like this perfect place to go and do a residency. And I sort of knocked on their door as a little kid and just asked them. um, Because
0: he had the big Damien Hirst uh, cow piece in formaldehyde kind of right in the middle of everything, right?
1: And such a meat heavy. So all of, you know, the whole menu was like steak and chicken. of yeah, And that's a lot the bones that I was using. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought the way that I collect things from my own meals and cooking and friends and stuff. And I just thought, imagine a whole kitchen that's really meat based. Every single day they're throwing it out. I knew that he had spaces in the back that I could work and then the gallery underneath. And I was like, wait, this is this perfect place building to have this really holistic sort of mm. project and then have an outcome
0: so you didn't get in the way I mean because kitchens are you know notoriously busy places with yeah, people shouting at each other and yeah, sweating yeah. a lot but and, and what did they make of having a kind of artist saying can I take those bones please I want to make a sculpture from it
1: Martin Sweeney was the head chef at that time and he really was so he really took me under his wing and was really up for it and he was I remember being really quite I was crying for like a bit of a rough time at the time and I remember him being just really kind and he'd encourage everyone in the kitchen to come down because I was working in the gallery gallery I did a little corner space in the gallery to work and he'd encourage everyone to come down and say hello and talk to me and why like, are you
0: going through a rough time Emma
1: just I can't remember <laughs> I'm so past that now okay. <laughs> but
0: like, you don't want to tell me that's
1: fine <laughs> no but you know when someone when you are having a rough time and someone's kind it really it really sticks with you yeah, yeah. but yeah he was like made sure that I was really included and yeah it was yeah it was really brilliant actually yeah
0: so, so how does the audience respond to your work I mean, I'm looking at the table in front of us there are pieces and I'm looking at them and I, I wouldn't necessarily think that's it wouldn't immediately occur to me that that's animal bone
1: yeah because I bleach them and dry them out with salt and the idea is to get them really really sort of kind of like driftwood or to, I don't know mm. just to to really take all the oil out of them but they do look like they've been cast into they look like they've sort of in porcelain mm, or they people, do have a
0: porcelain quality to yeah
1: them. and especially with a lot of the finished works people just assume that Yeah, they're casts of. And some people will really go close and inspect it and then pull away when they realise.
0: But I mean, it's odd that people would think bone is something to be repulsed by isn't it because i mean it's in so many things that we use and and work with i mean scrimshaw the kind of artwork classically but it's in a bunch of other things i mean tattoo ink i I had no idea but there is there is bone in tattooing
1: yeah totally your body will sort of repel what's not supposed to be in it so so you cut yourself with glass your Mm. body will naturally push the glass out of the cut. so tattoo ink has to be something that mimics the human body enough that it doesn't repel it so crushed animal bone is used often in tattoo ink and there's so much yet and Thank you. the cat Yeah, my favourite story is my friend was at a party, a house party, like crammed into a kitchen and a girl came up to him who was vegan and like very angry about it and was ready to like tell everybody that she was morally superior and she spotted that he had a leather belt and that was it. So they were there to have a good time, but it was like, right, we're on to this. And she stood and broke him and she was like really quite tough looking, covered in tattoos and started really laying into him and he knew and he sort of just folded his arms and just sort of sat back and let her just go through this whole lecture at him and then right at the end he was like okay i really like your tattoos do you realize what's in them and her face just dropped and i think she googled it and then she was in the bathroom crying like and i do really feel for her because people just they don't know i wouldn't know yeah why would you know yeah nobody says yeah but
0: also Filtering wine goes through bone, yeah, yeah, yeah. bone ash,
1: bone charcoal, and it's been used throughout history for so many. When you look at like glue and soaps, Mm. and it's it's sort of filtered to use as like metal coatings, and there's so many industrial purposes for bone that's completely Mm. normal. Furniture repair, they use shards of bone for furniture, and you know, musical instruments and tools and it's completely normal. It's like, yeah. use it, use it, you know, it's the same sort of idea of using wood, but without the...
0: Yeah, people are still quite shocked when they see your pieces.
1: Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. There's really interesting responses there. Yeah, yeah. Like when I was at Tramshed... You know, someone who eats meat every day, serves meat every day, possibly on China plates and, you know, is using bones that he doesn't realise. So he'll sort of clear the plates and be completely fine and have it for lunch. And then when he came down and saw the organisation of them, that's what creeped him out. So to see that they'd been bleached and categorised and put into like size and shape order and labelled, that's what freaked him out that it was like the... You wouldn't actually stand anywhere near me. And so I it was, that it was, was your so level of organisation that, that scared him Actually, right? <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> You've alluded to it, but it'd be really nice, I think, to talk about the process in a bit more detail if mm. we could. I mean, do you draw, for instance?
1: No. No, no, okay. no, no, no. Yeah, really, can't, I don't know if it's can't draw or won't draw. Just, know, <laughs> my brain just really doesn't. I really, I'm really tactile and it's really 3D for me and right. it's really about touch.
0: How does the bone make it from a plate? into one of these kind of florid pieces that we're looking at yeah. the table.
1: So I will sort of collect everything, put it in the freezer and then when I have enough to sort of bother to to start sorting them out I'll boil them down um just enough to sort of like clean them but not soften them too much and then I'll scrub every single piece so when I'm looking at like the tiny chicken feet bones the process is so laborious and it is ritualistic in that it's such a long part of it Mm. and I'll boil down every single one scrub each one clean put them into bleach like just cheap household bleach to decalcinate them so it takes away the oil and like the fat and then dry them out and then Some of the bigger bones, some of the more land animal bones that have more oil, I'll then put them into salt and leave them for like a couple of weeks. And then it's categorising them into the right shape and size. And then I'll be sort of ready to work with them. Mm. So all of that process is really, it's got to sort of, when I'm making a few pieces at a time, it's really got to feed into your day-to-day life. So Mm. it really does become a ritual.
0: And how do you categorise them into animal? You have boxes of chicken feet or boxes of oxtail. How how does that work?
1: Yeah, kind of, and different shapes and sort of different shapes. shapes that you'll just sort of experiment with how they fit together like I really love when they sort of hug or you'll have the same type of bone the same animal bone but they're different sizes but they naturally sort of fit into each other so Mm. they sort of become this yeah they sort of hug into place and you can sort of mindlessly sort of let the shape sort of lead what they're doing
0: so like animal bone jenga
1: yeah <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so so the material really is is leading yeah the form totally
1: yeah and you can't and you have to sort of you can control it to an extent but it really is this little beast where it's they it is this sort of dead material but there still are proteins inside and mm. they do react to the space so they are still alive in their own way and mm. so you have to sort of you're never quite the boss of them mm.
0: <laughs> you've talked about sourcing them from your own plate and and friends plates but i mean presumably as you've got more successful you need more bones i mean is it all coming from your own eating no where, so- where, where, do you, where, where do you find these things? i did Emma?
1: go for a period when i was younger of just having an excuse to eat like I Hell of a lot of fried chicken.
0: <laughs> I, get, whether you walk into restaurants you go, I'll have a two-bone steak. Yes, you know, is that yeah, how it works? Yeah,
1: kind of. Yeah. Or my friends would really, they would get the drill. So we'd all have like a big <laughs> birthday dinner and everyone would just pass the bones down. Like, we know the drill. Like, it's fine. I used to tell people this for my dog. And... um and then I sort of, but then I'd find I had favourite bones that then I'd go out to sort of source them. So I have a few, I call them like my dealers, so the few butchers and <laughs> chefs and stuff that. But then I get these lovely surprises as well. So I'll get sort of a message on Instagram, and it's a photo of something that's been on their menu, and so they've got this sort of bowl of pig's heads or whatever it is, lamb shoulder, and it's actually lovely to work in that way because it feels quite seasonal so whatever's on their menu is obviously what's in season and yeah. there's a lovely way of again putting your arms up and just being led to what's available and sort of responding to that which is quite nice
0: yeah yeah and you've compared it just now to driftwood but is, is that what it's like to work with it's so nice
1: yeah when you bleach it out like the, the bird bones are far more porous and light and they're more fragile and it's almost, is it ASMR when something's Ooh, textural and it's, you know, the sort of cutting through sand when something's textural yeah. and it makes you like, Ugh. it's <laughs> like that with some of the really dry bones where you can file them down. They're quite strong, but they're they're sort of gentle enough that you can file them down into like perfect shapes that fit together onto like the base that I'm using for example and then they'll sort of file together and fit absolutely perfectly which I imagine is the same you know like finger joints in carpentry if Mm. it fits perfectly it's that same sort of satisfactory Mm. like way mm.
0: of making. So it's definitely a comparison to wood, in other words.
1: I would say, yeah, yeah. for the more, yeah, poorest yeah, types yeah. of
0: bands. Can we talk a little bit about your background, mm. Emma? Um, you were born in Hertfordshire. I think I'm right in saying you have a, like an English side of the family and a Jamaican side. Yes. I mean, how did that I wonder how that manifests itself, where the family gatherings are very different depending on which side of the family you were were visiting, I wonder.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I was very, I was brought up really countryside, sort of commuter belt, North London, really, really. Um, But yeah, my granddad is from Jamaica. And so I knew that side of the family less, but it's really funny the difference in food and sort of that Mm. interesting food, where my mum was absolutely Caucasian. Like growing up, meat for us was like supermarket chicken breast that had been de-skinned, boned, and was in a plastic packaging and like salt and pepper was an exotic spice to her, (laughs) you know, just really, really wild. I'm aware of that, yeah. And, (laughs) you know, and then, you know, if you're at a Jamaican like funeral, which is like being at a festival party and it's like meat on the bone and it's, it's just a completely different, yeah. I always found that sort of contrast in food culture Yeah, this really was quite interesting. And is this where
0: the the interest in food was spawned, I wonder?
1: Yeah, I think so. And when I moved into London, a lot of my friends were Southeast Asian and I I sort of moved into a Vietnamese community and it was like my food world had been completely opened up to me and that was part of it being this fascination with the sort of um, visuals and the texture of food. And mm. I think that completely inspired me.
0: I mean, because I grew up in the home counties as well. And when I was younger, all I wanted to do was to leave and to get into the middle of London. Yes. We sat here in the middle of London. Was, yeah. that, was that your childhood?
1: Yeah, 100%. <laughs> but my family are Londoners as well. Yeah. So my mum's from Islington and my dad's from Edmonton. So I'm a Spurs and Hertfordshire mix. Like well, no, Spurs and Arsenal mix. Oh,
0: okay. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> so yeah, it does feel at the same time very much like home, but... Yeah.
0: And were you making things as a child?
1: I was collecting things. So all Ah. the boxes here was, that's how I sort of functioned as a child. So I desperately wanted to be some kind of inventor or scientist. I madly wanted to be a scientist. And I used to get up really early in the morning so that I'd have a couple of hours to myself as a kid before the grown-ups were up to, like, go and discover things in the garden and, like, just be a little weirdo in the garden (laughs) and, like, break things to figure out how they were put together. And, like, that was my bliss time <laughs> so when
0: you say early how early was early
1: um i guess like seven eight six oh, okay. that kind of oh, okay. age but yeah i was really i wanted to do something either something with plants or i would desperately wanted to be a scientist and
0: what were you like at school
1: um <laughs> okay thank you <laughs> no, i hated school i really hated school i was expelled from my primary oh, no. school <laughs> What, what happened when i was about eight and i've no, and i sort of
0: you're really gripping that cushion hard now
1: <laughs> i was just a really frustrated child Like so i just remember being so utterly bored at school and i just had to find ways of entertaining myself and they were often like maybe terrorizing other children or just i was just in my own world like completely little adhd kid in my own world
0: Well, I was going to ask, I mean, you talk about ADHD, I mean, mean, because we know each other a little over the Mm. last couple of years. I mean, you have told me in the past that you've been diagnosed with as having dyspraxia, Mm. which is a kind of developmental coordination disorder, which affects physical coordination and also ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, and which affects people's behavior. So, I'm yeah. going, I mean, how did that manifest? How did those oh, two things manifest themselves? As I were wish I
1: up? knew this. I so wish I sort of understood that that was what my brain and body was going right. through. Because you time. weren't diagnosed. No. So when
0: did the diagnosis? happen? Well,
1: I was. Um, it wasn't really until I was an adult that then I was having a conversation with a psychotherapist. Not as not as a official meeting, but just like drinks, mm-hmm. hanging out. And then I think I made a joke about something about ADHD, and he was like no, you absolutely do. And he thought it was funny that I sort of made a reference. He was like, no, you absolutely do. And as I looked into it, I was like, okay, like so much makes sense. Um, And I was a bit younger when my mum knew that I had dyspraxia, but she didn't tell me. And I think it was that she didn't want to give me any sort of glass ceiling or I would be the kid that would like use it as an excuse. Your mum knew? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. But... I remember finding this really funny. I remember going to have a meeting with my GP about it at one point. I didn't necessarily want to take medication for ADHD mm. or anything like that, because mm. I do think it can be your superpower in ways. Mm. And she knew about the dyspraxia at that point. And she, the, the actual GP had to stifle a laugh. And she was like, that's a really, it's such an unfortunate combination that your brain is like, blah, 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 and then your body can't quite respond. So you've got these, your body and your brain are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Sometimes like no wonder you get really agitated. Yeah.
0: It must be all right when you're making things. I mean, you know, because you talk about you you can be uncoordinated and Mm. and, and, and (laughs) restless at the same time, but these are incredibly delicate things that I would imagine require one, concentration to make, and two, you know, quite refined sense of coordination. So how does that work?
1: Any maker will describe their honing in on what they're doing as this blissful escape from the world. and. I think for me, it's that it's just the extremity of that. This idea of sort of hyper-focusing. I think if you do sort of have a bit of an attention deficit or you have, I'll wake up some days and try to do five things at once and mm. it's really annoying and I have to write lists and I have days like that. Um, but then my escape is absolutely closing the door and just focusing on these bones and not just focusing on the tiny little details of them and that's your way of completely closing the world out and just everything else can sort of turn to white noise and it's beautiful and it's almost like this really selfish act, not selfish, like it's really really, the act of making is just pure joy when Mm. you do have time to yourself to just be focusing on that.
0: And the rest of the time you're hearing about the place.
1: Yeah, skipping around. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But I mean, in terms of coordination as well, this is something I didn't know about you until yeah. we were speaking the other day. I mean, you were like really good at netball.
1: Yeah, and I hadn't thought about this for so long that it might have been connected. But yeah, netball was actually a huge part of my life. As like, I mean, how good at netball were you? Pretty good. Like, pretty. It's probably the thing in the, in life that I was actually really one of yeah. the best. That was really. Um, I'm six foot tall, my sister played ball. You know, my parents really encouraged us into sports, which now I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is why. And yeah, and we played for our school team, played for our club team. So there was one point that I remember playing at least eight times a week, every week, right. when it was really the peak of playing and, you know, club teams. So I was doing like training and matches with school. I was doing it in PE. I was then playing for my club team, training and matches. I was then playing for county And I was scouted by the England Satellite Academy to start doing the the, sort of like the pre-training that goes Mm. up into the England team, which then at that point, I think I was doing my A-levels and was, I knew I wanted to go to art school and I knew I wanted to absolutely what I wanted to do. And there was this weird crossover where I was playing netball so much that I mean me and my friends and my team would fantasise about imagine what it would be like to have a weekend off (laughs) because we'd be travelling as well and we'd be doing tournaments and it was huge and when we started doing the really serious training it was like you'd have to record the amount of millilitres of water you were taking in a day and you would have a diary of like how much, how many carbohydrates were on your plate and this really serious organisation that was not for me and it was like you'd have all your training days a down day would be like go swimming so it'd be more activity and I'm actually a really lazy person inside so I think <laughs> I just yeah, I sort of reached a peak of it I really played absolutely to a really serious point and then suddenly that was that but yeah it was yeah funny to think that again with the sort of dyspraxia that I was a goal shooter as well so it was like a really so again it's like really a specific sort of physical eye coordination. So again, to me that doesn't make sense either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we need a medic in here (laughs) to to work out what's been what's been going on. Yeah. I mean, was it clear when you're at school what you were going to do ultimately? Was it always Um, going to be art school?
1: I really wanted to be a scientist. I really, really wanted to, you mm. know, I started, I sort of took biology at first from my A-levels as well. And it right. was, it was always going to be something material. I think that was it. It was always going to be, so I was really interested in, yeah, like bodies and plants. And it, I think it was either going to be something sciencey or something that where it was making, at some, yeah, something like that.
0: Because mm. you ended up doing performance design mm. at Central Saint St. Martins. Why that subject?
1: I think because I was really interested in theatre and I'd taken drama and I was never going to be a performer. Why weren't you going to be a performer? (laughs) I just, I'd be giggling, I'd be like this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I was really interested in the sort of artifice and the smoke and mirrors and the, I really loved that sort of live art thing. And I was really interested in theatre history. And then I was interested in fine art, but I had that really sort of working class mentality of like find a trade. I think I really wanted to be an artist, but I didn't see, I, you know, none of my family are in the arts whatsoever. Right. So right. I had no idea about how it worked or how you'd ever get a job. So I think my bit in between was like, if I do stage design, there's a bit of a trade there somehow.
0: Mm. You ended up doing a piece for the Rambert. Rimbaud- School of Dance, right? What what was that?
1: Yeah, I was really interested in costume. And again, it was, um, because the course was so broad, it was like people that wanted to do directing or lighting, performing, stage design, props. So there was no, it was, there was no specific lessons. Like we never had, you know, sit down and do like costume pattern cutting or anything like that. So again, it was just being really inventive. If you wanted to do a project, you had to just figure out what you wanted to do Mm. and do it. So again, it really came back to materials and using sort of non- traditional materials and making them up so i was fascinated with hair and so i was making these costumes for performers and i really liked the idea of like hair moving and so i'd go and buy these long sort of fake braids from packs in north london and badly high and sew them onto these structures i'd made and it actually made these sort of amazing costumes during these live performance that you could dance Um, in. well yeah yeah Yeah, yeah.
0: sandy you have a piece made of your own hair on your website, right? Uh, so yeah. the hair, thing, oh, yeah. the, the hair is, is a thread, is a thread. <laughs> yes, that's gone through your work.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, when I came out of art school, the first job I had ever was assisting Alice Anderson, and she, you know, the, the woman she does like the she wraps everything in the red hair, right? Like in the red doll's hair, like she covered the uh, roll up house in red hair, um, and I was really obsessed with her. And that was actually my first job. Coming out and just doing this sort of repetitive, and I really learned about sort of just doing something really repetitively, like to perfection. When you left,
0: you graduated with the first. Yes, Jolly I did. Well Thank you. Jolly well for mentioning um, that. We <laughs> <laughs> got a grant yes. to set up your own studio yes. from the University of Arts, London. Yeah, and you, you set up a company with Emily Bridge called Beasts and Beast Burden. Beasts and
1: burden. Yeah, yeah.
0: Which worked with food and performance. Yes. So describe food and performance what did that entail what kind of things did you make
1: yeah well that was sort of where the fascination with food really came from that we had a final major project as part of the end of our degree and it was the first year that they were in the new site at King's Cross so between us, we didn't have a workshop like at all. Like, mm. oh, yeah, 30 kids were crammed into a storage facility, like a storage cupboard, literally with the cleaning materials. Pay good money <laughs> for those kind of facilities, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it all worked out brilliantly because we, we knew that we wanted to do a project that was outside of the physical union and to just go and self-direct it something. So we were completely free um, and we found a space and wanted to make a show that was... A, we pulled food as a topic out of the air just because it's universal. Right. But once you, like with anything, once you start to sort of unpick and um research, there's just more and more and more and more. And just I became so fascinated. And we put on a performance, like a private sort of immersive performance piece for 10 people that was based around a dinner. And it was really weird. And we we're looking at all these ideas surrounding food, like gluttony and greed and like food fetishes and using food as a material. And that's the bit that I really, really love. Like Mm -hmm. I loved making these weird props and like wrapping things in ham and just being really like silly and creative with food. And then as I came to the end of that, I was like, that's absolutely what I want to do. And I wonder if we can do it and make money out of it somehow, mm. like so, do some kind of prop making. And we did fall into sort of starting to work in advertising. So we did have like round trees, took us on to make fruit pastel towers for like these channel four idents. And it, we weirdly just pushed it into a job that we invented, mm. which was quite cool actually when we were much younger.
0: So how did you go from that to becoming a solo artist?
1: Um, Emily was not so interested in continuing with it. I think her mind was more in sort of graphics and more sort of 2D work. I was sort of still drifting towards like, let's be a bit weirder. And so I think we just naturally sort of had a sort of fork. I think we sort of set up and sort of found our confidence through doing it. And also like through starting the business and I don't know, it's just like a good learning thing that we Mm. did together.
0: Mm. But decided to go your separate ways, obviously. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Memento Mori, which is an artistic reminder of the inevitability of death, features quite heavily mm. in your work. You had a solo show at Saraband, the Lee McQueen Foundation in London, which was entitled Remember You Must Die in 2019, that we mentioned in the intro. Um, when you go to the press clippings, there are plenty of references to the macabre, but there are almost as many to the word beauty. Mm. So your work deliberately plays on those opposites. Yeah. Do you see them as opposite, I wonder?
1: Um, yeah, kind of. And I think that also it's, when you look at, you know, like the Dutch, like the sort of 17th century Dutch yes. still life paintings, yes. and it's really this reminder of death. And I think it's Memento Mori that does translate literally to Remember You Must Die, which sounds really dark and sort of like it's this ominous reminder of death but actually it just means like YOLO like we only live once like (laughs) we're all going the same way it could be tomorrow it could be next week for you know so like enjoy the day now like it's actually a really positive thing to just Mm. think we're all like this isn't a dress rehearsal like enjoy your life now while you have it and I thought that was really interesting and it relates really well to people sort of assuming that bone as a material is really dark and it's absolutely not and it's just that sort of that tension between the two things i think was always really interested me i
0: mean beauty is a word that the design and architecture communities at least really have tried to avoid using it seems mm-hmm. to me until fairly recently but yes it, but it was obviously an important part of your practice
1: yeah definitely again in the art world that would be the biggest disgrace you know it's almost like decorative Mm. or beauty you know it's like Mm. awful it's this horrible word to spit at something that isn't you know like isn't interesting enough but it was really important because it was trying to really I suddenly felt that I was this sort of custodian of the material in a weird way and I was trying to like really stand up for it and so it was always trying to push it to be how can I make people just really accept it how could this be something that could be in someone's space and it's not as scary and it's not and I wanted people to kind of yeah just change their minds about it.
0: That notion of being a custodian of a particular material Mm. is interesting. Mm. Is there a community of bone-based artists, I wonder, sculptors? Yeah, well, this has been
1: really interesting to me. Mm. Well, me and my friend, Diane Palmer-Hughes, who's an art historian and a writer, he wrote an article on me and we became really good friends and we've always been really interested in a similar sort of things. And I will often be, asked. Be, or there was, there's often comments that it's a really unusual practice Oh, that's such a strange material. And like we were saying about the history of bone, it's completely not. And I remember just thinking there's loads of people and I remember just starting to look like actually where are the other artists? You know, I knew that there was an artist in Japan who created floral pieces and then buried them back into the earth and it was like mm. very holistic. And between us we decided to start a collective, so it's on Instagram as Bone Creatives and we're looking at publishing a book that explores the use of bone throughout different cultures throughout time. And there's so many. And again, that idea of sort of starting to unpick a little bit of research, you realise there's so much underneath and there's, lo- there's just so many people. So we're yeah looking to create a sort of collective. And I think it, this one book is going to end up being a series of books, which mm. I, I would really love and different sort of with different viewpoints on bone or different Sort of moments, and I'd love to do an exhibition as well of like mm. design and art.
0: It's interesting because I was going to ask whether you worried about being stereotyped as somebody who just worked in bone, but I wouldn't ask that mm. of somebody who worked in porcelain.
1: No, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's also your material is kind of like your language that you've learned, and then you use the language to go on to say whatever you want to say yeah, and, it, yeah. and also it's such a diverse material as well you, you can do so much with it and I'd love to really learn all the different industrial purposes like looking at bone china or looking at bone ash you know charcoal or if I did charcoal drawings or ink that had been made out of bone ash that's still the material mm. so
0: mm. yeah but there again somebody who's working in porcelain they wouldn't be winning the eccentric artist of the year that you <laughs> won in 2015 <laughs> oh <right>? hilarious <laughs> From the eccentric club, which I yeah. never knew existed till I was reading yeah. one of your CVs somewhere right.
1: <laughs> Yeah, they've kind of closed now, but I was so I was so glad to like catch a glimpse of the end of it. I love these weird old sort of London institutions, yeah. these sort of quiet places.
0: That notion of being quote unquote eccentric mm. that doesn't bother you?
1: Not really. I think not really. If if that was like a quote that was used all of the time, it's a bit like it's. I guess that's the idea of sort of trying to make sort of floral pieces on a whole, or trying to make things beautiful. Is that you are arguing that it's not some kind of Victorian cabinet of curiosity freak thing? It's completely normal. Like Mm. you're probably using bone in some aspect of your daily life, and you don't even realise. And when you're not
0: creating sculptures from Mm. Animal Bones. You're also a stylist and you make props for photo shoots as you've kind of alluded to. You've worked with a pretty extraordinary list of people, Emma, mm. and I'm going to read a few of them. Emily <laughs> Sandé, Idris Elba, Pixie Lot, Little Mix, love Little Mix. <laughs> I do, it's sad, I'm a middle-aged man, but I love Little Mix.
1: They're Here's all, your moment to they're admit
0: all, that. Yeah, they're, they, I'm sure they're listening. <laughs> and,
1: but they're all pregnant
0: as well, like en masse together. Mm, it's a bit yeah, like the yeah, Midwich yeah. Cuckoos, Up, I mean, it was a bit yes. weird. Um, you've also, st- <laughs> I've lost my tracking time, you've also styled... Um, Album cover for Kylie Minogue. Yeah. Yeah. What's Kylie like?
1: Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I was working with um, Simon Emmett, who's an amazing fashion and beauty photographer. And she's amazing. She's one of the celebrities that will go around at the end of the shoot and speak to absolutely every person. She'll know everybody's name and she'll sit down and talk to you. And it's almost like the best sort of press she can give for herself because it's, yeah, she's Mm -hmm. just, yeah, really, really, really personable and, yeah, really cool. And I found that... Often the bigger celebrities are far more like that. It's sort of the other way around than you'd expect it to be.
0: It's interesting that, isn't it? I mean, uh, this is really apropos of nothing to do with bones or, mm. or indeed your career. But I remember um, <laughs> when Take That kind of came back after years away. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be a highfalutin podcast, but we'll, I'll just mention Let's Take just That Let's just go quickly. there, yeah. But. It's a really interesting piece that I read that one of the journalists was saying that when they were huge the first time around, they were renowned for being completely professional and delightful to work Mm. with and talking to all the researchers, anybody on the floor, they would be completely pleasant to. So when they came back 15 or whatever years later, Mm. those researchers had become... The producers, they become the management, so they were welcomed back with open arms, which was one of the reasons. Apart from coming back with a couple of good tunes, one of the reasons why mm. they were successful again. Anyway,
1: what was your favourite tune?
0: Oh, I like the stuff they came back with. <laughs> I, um, the, uh, the, the patience, I like that. That's a good oh, yeah. track. That's a good track in my view. I mean, it does It's not making me sound cool. By Can the way. we have
1: that to play out at the end of this? Uh, no, because that costs money. Oh, okay, we, we'll oh. have to have
0: the normal noises. I'm okay. Afraid. <laughs> But also, and I don't know, you probably, this will embarrass you. But if you Google you, which right. obviously is what I do when I'm making these things, um, you are also a model. I, it's no good squeezing no. your face like, like, like that. There are lots of pictures of you being modelling.
1: No, That's a really, really strong, like when I was at university, I'd do a few modelling jobs. Like Imagine if you're, there's actors and then there's someone who'll be like an extra in the back of a advert. So I was like an extra as a model yeah. for a little bit.
0: Fair enough. Really what I'm alluding to, <laughs> you're wearing all these different hats, but would you also say you're you're a craftsman? I mean, would you say you've done your 10,000 hours with bone and, and does that matter to you?
1: No, I don't feel like I'm there yet. When I say like custodian of a material, I guess I mean that I feel to look after it or protect it. I think not anywhere near... I would really love to like continue as much as I, I still would love to work with other materials as well and try different things, but I would love to have um, bone as this sort of thread all the way through and to like learn all the different sort of outcomes that you can create with it and what sort of new technologies you can use mm. with bone as well. And so like really, I think I could call myself a craftsman when I've really sort of mastered it years and years
0: mm. ahead kind of thing. Mm. There's a quote from you. I quite like where you said I've taught myself some very weird and not useful skills. Mm. So, what's the weirdest and most <laughs> and least useful skill um, you've learned?
1: I'm trying to think. That's normally with um that's more with like styling work, like that's more when you're when you're sort of you've taken on a set design job or a prop making job and You want the money, and you're like, I can do that. And you have to go from being a novice in something to being apparently the expert. And you Mm. show up on set like I'm the person who knows how to. I don't know, say like with this fruit pastels job that we did. You know, I had to figure out a way of making this pile of sweets fall towards the camera a certain timing. And so you just have to like learn how to do that. How just through trial and error, and just being young and
0: but with a bit of string or fishing wire? Yeah. A few different
1: pieces of glue, fishing wire, work out the sort of weight and, you know, so just things like that that just you'll never, ever need to know again.
0: (laughs) So look, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, Plans for the future. London Design Festival is coming up, for instance. Um, Have you got stuff going on?
1: Yes. So I'm really excited about a show that I'm doing in September, Mm -hmm. October with Gallery Fumi. So they've got an amazing idea for a show, which is the collaboration show. So they've taken like artists and designers, paired them together to create an object Um, And I was partnered with Shinta, who is in Tokyo, who I met during my residency at Saraband, who's an incredible silversmith. And it's been a brilliant exercise working with somebody who's on the other side of the planet. You obviously have the sort of language barrier. And then there's this also like a tech barrier of, so we don't speak on Zoom or even by email. It's all through WhatsApp. So we've designed and made this piece through WhatsApp. Wow. and then we've also, I've, my hero in life is Dr. Michelle Oyen. She's a bioengineer based in North Carolina in the US who has invented lab-grown bone. So really it was for medical purposes. Um, and now she's sort of exploring the idea that it would be actually the most perfect construction material for skyrise buildings mm. and um like yeah it's like really environmentally friendly and like really sort of low um emission to produce it and I've been so interested to work with her for so long and then we had this project and I thought this would be perfect to see if I can send part of the piece that we're working on over to the US and she's now sort of developed the idea of lab grown bone to the point where she can spray it so you're almost doing like a car spray cover of this Organic material. Sorry, you're going to have to go back yeah. for, for me to catch up with that. Yeah.
0: So, what you've sent her is made of.
1: Oh, so Shinta has made the metals, like part of the metalwork, right. which then he sent it to her to right. then, put, like sections of it, to then be covered in this artificial bone, which is then coming to London and I'm assembling it and then adding other elements myself. Okay. So we've got this sort of three different continents working on this one with object. With
0: three separate materials, really. Yeah. I mean, if we're thinking of yeah. lab grown bone, you're presumably adding bone. I'm working bone? with
1: uh, crushed pearl again. Ah, so we okay. Yeah. And silver and silver
0: and we can see this at Gallery Fumi in September yes yeah 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 very good very good well Emma our time is up (laughs) I know you can (laughs) let go of the cushion now (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much it was a complete joy
1: thank you and I was really honoured to be asked thank you very much
0: and to discover more about Emma's work go to emmawitter.co.uk as ever there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page grant on design And you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff on grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you receive exclusive posts, blogs, and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft, and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.